Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, where for 34 years we have engaged the public in reflection and dialogue on the key issues of our day from an ethical perspective. All forums are free and open to the public, and information on upcoming events can be found online at westminsterforum.org. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I'm the senior minister at Westminster Presbyterian Church, located on Nicollet Mall in beautiful downtown Minneapolis, and I moderate the forum. It's my pleasure to introduce today's speaker. Brian Stevenson is a public interest lawyer who has served on the faculty of New York University School of Law since 1998. He's the founder and executive director of the Equal Justice Initiative, an organization committed to eliminating excessive and unfair sentencing, exonerating innocent prisoners on death row, confronting abuse of the incarcerated and mentally ill, and aiding children prosecuted as adults. In 2010, Mr. Stevenson and the Equal Justice Initiative argued for and won the historic ruling in the U.S. Supreme Court that found mandatory life without parole sentences for children 17 or younger unconstitutional. Professor Stevenson is a graduate of Harvard Law School and the Kennedy School of Government, the author of the new book, Just Mercy, A Story of Justice and Redemption, which profiles the lives of men, women, and children who are at the mercy of a broken criminal justice system. For his commitment to serving the legal needs of the poor and for challenging racial discrimination in the criminal justice system, he has received national and international acclaim, receiving numerous awards that include, among others, the MacArthur Fellowship Award Prize, the ACLU National Medal of Liberty, the Olaf Palm Prize for International Human Rights, and the Award for Courageous Advocacy from the American College of Trial Lawyers. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my honor to welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, Brian Stevenson. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm so honored to be here. Uh, it's great to be in uh, Minneapolis. Uh, it was uh, 75 degrees when I left Alabama yesterday. <laughs> Not quite that warm here, but I'm still delighted to be here. There's a wonderful uh, warm spirit in this place. It's great to be in such a beautiful sanctuary. I want to talk about what's happened in this country over the last 40 years, but more than that, I want to talk about what I think we can and should be doing uh, to creating greater justice uh, in our communities, uh, in our states, in our country. Uh, the United States is a very different place today than it was 40 years ago. 40 years ago, we had 300,000 people in jails and prisons in America. Today, we have 2.3 million. The United States now has the highest rate of incarceration in the world. Uh, we have 5% of the world's population, but 25% of the world's imprisoned. Uh, there are some 6 million people on probation and parole in this country. There are over 60 million people with criminal arrests. And when they apply for a job, they have to worry about not ever being hired because of their prior arrest. And this new landscape has changed our communities in really pretty dramatic ways. Uh, in many states, you permanently lose the right to vote as a result of a criminal conviction. My state of Alabama permanently banned you from voting ever again. And right now, about 32% of the black male population has permanently uh, lost the right to vote. Uh, we have places where there is so much 
uh, incarceration, that people are almost as if they're gone. Uh, the Bureau of Justice projects that one in three black male babies born this century is expected to go to jail or prison. The projection is one in six Latino boys is expected to go to jail or prison. These are bleak and dismal statistics. And yet there is, in my view, an appalling silence about what over-incarceration and excessive punishment is doing to our community. Uh, there are presumptions of dangerousness and guilt. Uh, we've seen this horrific uh, display in Fer Ferguson, Missouri, but I'm going to argue that these uh, acts are reflections of these presumptions of dangerousness and guilt. I'm glad there are so many high school kids in this room, but they're, even in our school system, we often criminalize children, we demonize children, we suspend and we expel people in ways that we didn't before because we were engaged. And I want us to talk about this. And I think that there are really four things that I'm persuaded we ought to be thinking a lot more about to create a more just community, more hopeful community. And the first is proximity. I am persuaded that all of us have to get closer uh, to the poor, to the disfavored, to the incarcerated, to the vulnerable, to the formerly incarcerated. Uh, there is a great distance uh, that has emerged in America. Wealth and affluence have created the capacity to create distance. And while it's tempting to go to the places where the challenges of poverty and racial bias and discrimination and abuse and neglect are less apparent, I think we have to do more than that. I think we've got to actually find ways to get close. When you get close to people who are struggling, you hear things that you can't hear otherwise. You see things you can't see otherwise. You understand the kinds of interventions that will work and the kind of interventions that won't. You will not be able to figure out which policies make sense until you've had some proximity uh, to the issues that you care about. I've learned about this because I grew up in a community where black children couldn't go to the public school. I started my education in a colored school. In my community, black kids weren't allowed to go to the public school, and lawyers came into our community and opened up the public schools. They enforced and implemented Brown versus Board of Education, which banned racial segregation in education. But it took them getting close to where I lived uh, for me to have the chance to go to high school. And but for their intervention, but for their proximity, I wouldn't be standing here uh, talking to you today. And I got to go to high school, and I got to go to college, and I had a great time in college, I was a philosophy major, and I played sports, and I played music, and I, have, I was having the time of my life. Uh, and then one day during my senior year, somebody came up to me and said, well, what are you going to do after you graduate from college? And I'd never really thought about that question. I actually thought it was a pretty hostile thing to ask someone. And, <laughs> and all of a sudden, I realized that nobody was going to pay me to philosophize when I graduated from college. And I panicked. I started running around trying to figure out what I was going to do. And I looked into graduate programs in history. And I looked into graduate programs in political science and psychology. And much to my dismay, to get into these graduate programs, you actually had to know something about history or political science and psychology. That was intimidating. And that's how I found law school. <laughs> it was pretty clear to me that you didn't need to know anything to go to law school. And so I signed up. Uh, and I had a pretty, I went to Harvard Law School, but I'll be honest, I had a pretty miserable experience my first few months. The, I went to law school because I was interested in talking about race and poverty and justice. And three months into law school, it didn't seem like anybody was talking about race or poverty or justice. And that disconnect bothered me. I found my way to a human rights organization that provides legal services uh, to the poor, to the condemned, and it's that proximity it was meeting people literally dying for legal assistance 
that energize my interest in law, my interest in justice. And so I'm persuaded proximity is key. We've been doing work on behalf of children. The United States is the only country in the world, uh, with the exception of Somalia, who has refused to sign the covenant on the rights of the child, which protects children uh, from enslavement and working conditions that are abusive and over-incarceration and the death penalty and life sentences. And it's that later category that has kept the US from agreeing to sign the covenant. The United States has some 250,000 people in adult jails and prisons serving long prison sentences for crimes they committed when they were children. On any given day, there are some 10,000 children, 17 and younger, in an adult jail or prison where they're at great risk of sexual assault or abuse or suicide. We have 3,000 children in this country who've been sentenced to die in prison some as young as 13 and 14 years of age. I've represented 13-year-old kids who were condemned to die in prison for non-homicide offenses. My proximity to this population broke my heart. It caused me to think differently about these issues. I was working on a case involving a 14-year-old child who was living in a house where his mother was repeatedly the target of a lot of domestic violence. And this a boy's mother had a boyfriend that would sometimes come home and this man would get violent and do destructive things. And one day, the man had been drinking and so he walked into the house and he called the boy's mother into the kitchen. She walked into the kitchen and without saying a word, this man just punched her in the face. Now she fell on the floor and she was bleeding and the little boy ran in to try to help his mom. The man went into a bedroom and fell asleep. And this little boy tried to get his mom to wake up and she was covered with blood. And after 20 minutes, he couldn't get his mom to respond, and this little boy thought his mom was dead. He was 14 years old, he was about five feet tall, he weighed under 100 pounds, he was very small for his age, and he'd never been in trouble before, he'd never had any prior convictions or juvenile adjudications, but he went into the bedroom where he knew this man kept a handgun. And the little boy opened the drawer, uh, dresser drawer where this gun was kept, and he pulled out the gun, and he walked over to where the man was sleeping. This child stood there pointing the gun at this man while he snored, and when the man stopped snoring, uh, the little boy pulled the trigger, tragically shot the man. The man died instantly. Now, because this kid had never been in trouble before, because he had never had any problems, he was a decent student, he's the kind of kid who probably would have been uh, certified to stand trial as a juvenile, but for the fact that the man that he shot and killed, his mother's boyfriend, was a deputy sheriff. And because he was a deputy sheriff, the prosecutor insisted that this child be tried as an adult. The judge certified him to stand trial as an adult, and he'd been in the jail for two or three nights before his grandmother called me, and I went to the jail. And this little boy walked in, he sat down, I started asking him questions, but he wouldn't answer any of my questions. He just kept staring at the wall. And I kept asking him questions, and he kept sitting there. And finally, I put my pen down, and I said, look, I can't help you if you don't talk to me. You've got to talk to me. He just kept staring. I got up and I walked around the table that separated us and I pulled my chair close to him and I said, look, I can't help you if you don't talk to me. You gotta talk to me. Just kept staring at the wall. And there became a moment when I didn't know what to do and I just started leaning on him. I don't even know why. But during the midst of leaning on him, I felt him lean back. And when he leaned back, I put my arm around him and I said, come on, I can't help you if you don't talk to me. You gotta talk to me. And when I put my arm around him, this little boy fell into me and he started crying hysterically. And through his tears, he began talking to me not about what happened with his mom, not about what happened with the man. He started talking to me about what had happened at the jail. He told me on the first night, so many people had hurt him, he couldn't remember how many there had been. He told me on the next night he had been raped by several people. 
He told me on the night before I had gotten there, so many people had hurt him, he couldn't remember how many there had been. And I held this little boy while he cried hysterically for almost an hour. And when I left that jail, I asked myself, who is responsible for this? And the answer is, we are. We've created a society that has been corrupted by the politics of fear and anger. We've allowed politicians and policymakers to do destructive, cruel things in our name. I went to the jail and to the judge, and I said, we've got to get this child out. And they got the little boy out, and I write about him in this book, and we were happy to find a, a wonderful family that got involved in him. I'm happy to report uh, that we got him out of that facility, and he's doing much better. But today, there are 10,000 children just where that child was. And our indifference and our distance keeps us silent, and I believe we've got to get closer to the children who most need someone close to them. Not the gifted kids, not the privileged kids, not the protected kids, but the kids that are unprotected. The kids who fall down, the kids who are being born into families that are shaped by violence, living in communities shaped by violence, school districts shaped by violence, those kids. And proximity, I am persuaded, is essential if we are going to create a more just community. Well, it's not just proximity. The second thing I am persuaded is that we've got to change the narrative it's not enough to want to do something about climate change. It's not enough to want to do something about unemployment. It's not enough to want to do something about income inequality. It's not enough to want to do something about gender issues and, 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 and all of these other issues. We've got to understand the narrative behind what protects and sustains the status quo. And once we understand that narrative, I believe we have to change the narrative. It's not enough to just have ideas. We've got to understand what it takes to change a narrative. These kids we've been condemning have been condemned because 30 years ago we had criminologists out there talking about how some children aren't really children. They argued that these kids look like kids, they talk like kids, but they're not really kids. These criminologists characterized a generation of children, mostly black and brown, and they said these aren't children, they said they're super predators. And they used that word to inspire every state in the country to change their laws, including Minnesota. And we lowered the minimum age for trying children as adults, and we started sending kids into the adult prison system. And that narrative has to change. I believe all children are children, all of them. And even the kids who fall down a lot, even the kids who have been abused and neglected, even the kids who have been disabled, even the kids who don't run as fast as the other kids are kids that need our protection. I'm concerned about changing the narrative about race on this day after in Ferguson, it breaks my heart uh, to see all of the uh, trauma and all of the uh, distrust, but more than that, to see the narrative that we ought to be talking about completely ignored. I'm persuaded that you cannot understand what's happening in our country around race and racial conflict without reflecting on the fact that we have never confronted the history of racial injustice in this country. You cannot deal with the issues that show up on TV by looking in the details of those particular claims, we've got to step back and look at this broader narrative, this narrative of how our country has been arrogant. We've been completely unwilling to acknowledge our mistakes. And there's no area of our life where the mistakes have piled up to create great distrust and inequality than in the area of race. We're doing work. We believe that we have to talk about slavery in America. We never did that. America wasn't a country like other countries. People say this, well, you know, they had slaves in Africa, they had slaves in Europe. These, those were societies with slavery. 
But we were something different. We weren't a society with slavery. We became a slave society. We actually created an ideology about racial difference to sustain and legitimate slavery. We said that people of African descent are deficient. They're not as smart. They're not as hardworking. They're not this. They're not that. We're actually doing something noble by enslaving them. And at the end of the Civil War, we had these amendments that were, ended, that were directed at ending forced labor, but forced labor was only part of slavery. The mythology, the racial difference, the subordination, that was the other part. That was in some ways the essential part. And because we never did anything about that, the 13th Amendment didn't address those myths, those lies, and as a result, slavery didn't end, it evolved. It turned into something else. And between Reconstruction and World War II, we terrorized African Americans in this country. We lynched them. We threatened them. We subordinated them. We subjected them to all kinds of humiliation. And these decades of terror created an American social scene that all of us have been compromised by. You know, I go into communities and older people of color come up to me and they say, Mr. Stevenson, we get so angry when we hear people on TV talking about how we're dealing with terrorism for the first time in the United States after 9-11. They said, we grew up with terror. We had to worry about being lynched. We had to worry about bombings and hate crimes and violence. And terror shaped our lives. And it didn't just shape the lives of people in the South. You have in Minneapolis and St. Paul. You have in Oakland, Los Angeles, New York, Detroit, Chicago, Boston, Philadelphia, communities of African Americans that came here not as people looking for economic opportunity. African Americans came to these communities as exiles and refugees from terrorism. They were fleeing conflict and violence, and they were traumatized by that conflict and violence. And any of you who have done work with refugees and exiles will know that there are needs that have to be addressed for these communities, and we never address them. And now we have ghettos and isolated communities and conflict and distrust, and these presumptions of dangerousness and guilt have persisted. Even in the civil rights era, we're so quick to celebrate. I have to tell you, I'm a little worried about our impulse to celebrate, celebrate, celebrate. We celebrate civil rights in this country as if it was just one big happy moment in American history. Uh, we talk about the civil rights movement like it was this three-day event. On day one, Rosa Parks didn't give up her seat on a bus. <laughs> on day two, Dr. King led a march on Washington. And on day three, we passed all these laws. And we're celebrating the 50th anniversary of the Civil Rights Act, and we'll celebrate the 50th anniversary of the March on Washington. Next month, March, we'll celebrate the 50th anniversary uh, of the Voting Rights Act. And it's one big celebration, and nobody is disqualified from celebrating. You don't have to show anything. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to prove anything. And this celebratory mindset is masking all the damage we did for decades by allowing segregation and racial hierarchy to exist. My parents were humiliated on a daily basis every day of their lives, and it hurt them. There were wounds and injuries and problems created by daily humiliation, by segregation. We did some very destructive things to everybody, not just the people of color who were subject to these restrictions, but everybody. We have a whole generation of white people in this country who were taught that they're better than other people because of their skin color. And we haven't helped them recover from that because unlike other societies, we didn't commit ourselves to a process of truth and reconciliation at the end of the civil rights era. We tried to move past the hard part. We didn't want to own up to all of the violence and destruction and difficulty. We tried to slip it by. And because of that, we continue to struggle. In South Africa, after apartheid, there was a recognition that we could not move forward without truth and reconciliation. 
In Rwanda, there's a recognition that there will not be lasting peace without truth and reconciliation. You cannot go to Germany without being forced to confront the legacy of the Holocaust because it is necessary that we reflect on that horror. Yet in this country, we do everything we can to avoid confronting all of the racial inequality, all of the racial injustice. And these presumptions of guilt follow black and brown people because we've never talked about them. We've never confronted them. And now even young kids of color in your school systems too often are going to be stigmatized and demonized and criminalized because we haven't confronted this legacy. I was in a court not too long ago, not in Alabama, in the Midwest, and I was sitting in uh, the courtroom getting ready for the hearing. It was at defense table, and I was just waiting for the courtroom to start. I'd never been there before, and the judge walked in, and the judge saw me sitting at defense table, and when he saw me there, he said, hey, 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 you get out of here. I don't want any defendants sitting in my courtroom before their lawyers get here. I stood up and I said, I'm sorry, Your Honor, I didn't introduce myself. I am the lawyer. And the judge started laughing. And the prosecutor behind him started laughing. And I made myself laugh because I didn't want to disadvantage my client. And then my client came in. It was a 17-year-old white kid I was representing. And we did the hearing. But afterward, I was thinking to myself, how is this person who has so much control over the lives of people, who exercises judgment in our justice system, not undermine, not compromise, by this racial thinking. People are angry in Ferguson not because, just because this officer wasn't indicted. They're angry because they've been menaced their whole life. They've been presumed guilty their whole life. They've been presumed dangerous their whole life. When there's crime in minority areas and poor areas, there's no response from the rest of the community. We don't talk about those crimes on the evening news. We don't write about those crimes in the newspapers. It doesn't seem that anybody cares about their victimization. And so that burden grows and grows, and that anger expresses itself. And it will not change until we change this narrative, our failure to confront the history. Uh, we're putting up markers all across the country. We want to put up slave markers and monuments. We want to put, put up markers and monuments at lynching sites. We want to talk about the great migration that led refugees and exiles into this community and about the challenges. And through that conversation, I believe we can change the narrative. Third thing. I should warn you, these get harder as I go along. I'm sorry about that. The third thing is that I am persuaded that we cannot create greater justice. We cannot protect and improve the quality of life in our communities unless we find ways to stay hopeful. I'm persuaded that hopelessness is the enemy of justice. Injustice prevails where hopelessness persists. We have to be individually and collectively hopeful about what we can do, because once you become hopeless, you accept the status quo. You don't worry as much about all the bad things that are happening because you don't have anything that you can do about that. And the truth of it is, is that we have to stay hopeful. Václav Havel talked about this. Havel said during the time of Soviet domination in Eastern Europe, they wanted all kinds of things. They wanted money. They wanted recognition. They wanted other governments to intervene. But the only thing they needed was hope. And Havel says the kind of hope you need to create justice isn't that pie-in-the-sky stuff. It's not a preference for optimism over pessimism. Havel says it's an orientation of the spirit. It's a willingness to position yourself in hopeless places and sometimes just be a witness. And I'm persuaded that he is right. I'll be honest, I wish it were easier. I wish that I didn't have to kind of struggle to stay hopeful all the time. You keep thinking that you get to a point in your life where you've got it down and it just happens automatically, but I'll tell you, it doesn't work like that. It's a struggle. 
And I work in a state where people are being executed, where we have lots of people with great needs, where there's tremendous poverty and tremendous bias, and sometimes I see it all stacked up. And it's tempting to feel like this is too big, too much, too overwhelming. I have vulnerabilities. There are things that make me especially hopeless. I don't like it when we talk about the good old days of the early 20th century. I don't like it when people romanticize the era of the Confederacy, these Confederate monuments and memorials. I don't like them. My state is just polluted, saturated with these Confederate flags and these images of the old South. And when I see them, I'm provoked. And I was going to a prison. There was a truck outside this prison. And this truck was like a shrine uh, to the old South. It had all of these flags and bumper stickers on it. It had the gun rack. And I, I saw a bumper sticker on this truck I hadn't seen before. One of the bumper stickers read, quote, if I'd known it was going to be like this, I'd have picked my own cotton. I hadn't seen that one before. I was just agitated by it. I walked past the truck and I went up to the prison door and inside the door was the, uh, a white guard who was standing there and I said, hi, I'm here for a legal visit. And the first thing he said to me was, you're not a lawyer. I said, oh, yes, sir, I am a lawyer. He said, well, where's your bar card? I said, I don't need my bar card to come into this prison. He said, you're coming into my prison, you're gonna have to show me your bar card. So to go back to my car and get my card that certified that I was a member of the bar, came back and showed it to him. I said, I want to see my client. He said, you're going to have to get in the bathroom. I'm going to give you a strip search before I let you in. I said, no, sir. Lawyers don't get strip search coming into this prison. He said, if you're coming into my prison, you're going to get in that bathroom. Couldn't find anybody to help me. And so I did. I went into the bathroom and subjected myself to this humiliating search. Came back out. I said, look, I want to see my client. I was trying to regain some dignity. He said, you've got to go back there and sign the book. I said, lawyers don't have to sign that book. You're coming into my prison, you go sign that book. So I did. And finally, he took me over to the door where I could go see this client, and he unlocked the door. But before I walked in, he grabbed me by the arm, and he said, hey, let me ask you something. I said, what's that? He said, did you see that truck out there with those bumper stickers and flags? I said, yeah, I saw that truck. He said, I want you to know that that's my truck. It really angered me. And I went into the prison to wait for this young man I was about to see, somebody I'd never met before. And finally, the client came into the room, and I knew he was disabled, but I didn't know much more about him. And the client sat down, and the first thing the client said to me was, quote, did you bring me a chocolate milkshake? And I thought to myself, this is the strangest day I've had in a really long time. <laughs> I said, no, I didn't bring you a chocolate milkshake. I'm your lawyer. I'm here to represent you. And I started asking him my questions, but I realized 10 minutes later he wasn't paying attention. He was still hung up on this milkshake, and I said, look, I'm sorry, I didn't know you wanted me to bring you a milkshake. The next time I come, if they let me, I'll bring you a chocolate milkshake. And he smiled and smiled and smiled. He was a very disabled person whose life had been ravaged by abuse and neglect and mental illness. He was in the foster care system. He was in 29 foster homes by the time he was 10 years old. He started showing evidence of schizophrenia at age 13. Uh, by 15, he was addicted to crack cocaine. At 17, he was a heroin addict. At 18, he was on the streets, roaming with no place to go. At 19, in the middle of a psychotic episode, he committed a horrific crime. He went to trial, and at no point during the trial did anyone ever use the word mental health, mental illness, mental disability. He had terrible representation. And one of the great challenges we have in this country is that we have a criminal justice system that treats you better if you're rich and guilty than if you're poor and innocent. Wealth, not culpability, shapes outcomes. And because this man was poor, he was quickly condemned. Uh, we started working on the case and came up with some very powerful evidence of his innocence, or excuse me, of his uh, mental illness. And we wanted to present that into court to show the judge that he should not be sentenced to death. And we worked on the case for several uh, weeks. And finally, it was time to go to court. 
Uh, and I saw my client, but I also saw this guard I hadn't seen uh, since that first encounter. And I went up to my client. I always had to tell him I couldn't bring him a milkshake. That was the way we started every conversation. But he seemed fine. And for three days, we put on our evidence. We had our experts testifying and our witnesses testifying. I felt good about the case at the end of the hearing. And about three weeks later, I decided to go back to the prison to see the client. And when I got to the prison, there was the truck. And I saw this truck in the parking lot. And I almost decided to just come back another day. But when I was a little boy, the civil rights people used to sing, don't let nobody turn you around. And I felt like I couldn't do that. And so I walked past this truck and I went up to the, to the prison door and there, sure enough, was the guard standing there. And I said, hi, I'm here for a legal visit. He said, hello, Mr. Stevenson, how are you? Through me. I said, I've got my bar card. He said, oh, I don't need to see that. I said, well, I'm going to go in the bathroom for your search. He said, oh, Mr. Stevenson, we're not going to do that. I said, well, I'll go over here and sign the book. He said, Mr. Stevenson, I saw you coming and I signed you in. Completely through me. I said, well, thank you. So I guess I'll see my client. He said, yes, sir. And he took me over to the door and I watched him try to unlock the door and his hands were shaking. And he couldn't get the key in the door and he was getting more and more unsteady. And finally, he got the key in there and he unlocked the door and he opened the door slowly, but he looked at me and he said, Mr. Stevenson, I want to say something to you. And I'll never forget it. He looked at me and he says, I want you to know that I was in that courtroom and I was listening. And he said, I want you to know that I think what you're doing is a good thing. Completely blew me away. He says, I, I grew up in the foster care system too. He says, I've been a really angry person all my life. But I listened and I think maybe your client had it worse than I do. And I just want you to know, I think what you're doing is a good thing. And can I please shake your hand? Would have never guessed it. Never guessed it. And I shook his hand. I said, I, I, I want to tell you how much it means to me that you did that. Really, I appreciate it a lot. And I turned to go see my client. The man grabbed me by the arm. He said, wait, wait, wait. I've got to tell you something else. I said, what's that? He said, well, I just want you to know I did something on the way back from the courthouse to the prison. I said, what'd you do? He says, well, I took an exit and I took your client to a Wendy's and I bought him a chocolate milkshake. <laughs> it's, a really, it's a really silly story, but it speaks to me about our need to stay hopeful. No one is beyond recovery. No one is beyond redemption. I cannot argue for the lives of my condemned clients without arguing for the people who are sometimes so filled with hate and corruption that they manifest it in violence and lethal misjudgment and bigotry. We have got to be hopeful about all of our community members if we're going to create the kind of justice that I believe we want. Fourth and finally, and this is the tough one, I think we have to choose to do uncomfortable things. We cannot create justice by staying in the comfortable spaces, by doing only what is convenient. Justice comes when good people choose to do uncomfortable things, inconvenient things. The civil rights movement was populated by people who chose to do uncomfortable things. And it's hard because human beings are programmed to do what's comfortable. We like comfort. I like comfort. Uh, this would not be the day I would pick to be in Minneapolis if I was just picking a day. <laughs> But this was the day it was necessary for me to be here. We've got to choose to do uncomfortable things, and it's a challenge, right? And I'm not against comfort. I was going to give a speech down in South Mississippi. I got off the plane, and people came up to me, and they said, Mr. Stevenson, the conference is going to be held at the Doubletree. But we know all about you. We've read about you. We know what kind of person you are. So we decided you wouldn't want to stay at the Doubletree Luxury Hotel. We got Farmer Jones to see if he would put you up somewhere in the barn. And I. I looked at them, what is wrong with you? Are you crazy? 
I like the chocolate chip cookie too. I want to be at the double chip. It's, that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is choosing to do something uncomfortable, going to places where people run from, spending time in spaces where people are suffering, going inside the jails and prisons, creating space for the formerly incarcerated, doing the things that are uncomfortable but necessary. Uh, we took on all of the people facing execution between 2009 and 2011 in Alabama. Alabama had the highest execution rate uh, in the country. And during that 30-month time period, we had 17 executions. We have no public defender system. We have no appellate defender system. And so me and my young staff were trying to help all of these people facing execution, and it was beating us down. And after the seventh or eighth execution, I jumped in and said, look, you young folks, just take a break. I'm going to try to handle these next couple. And I got involved in a case, and I felt like I'd been doing this long enough that I knew what I was doing. And even though I knew we weren't going to probably stop the execution, I wanted to fight for this man. Terrible case of injustice, intellectually disabled man who shouldn't have been executed. The court bans the execution of people with intellectual disabilities. But because he couldn't get a lawyer to raise the issue at the right time, everybody said, too late. We have a system that prefers finality to fairness, I was just here last week arguing a case at the Eighth Circuit that's really about this battle between finality and fairness. Like it can ever be too late to be fair, to be just. That is a challenge we have in the society. And every court I went to in this man's uh, case with the death penalty said too late. And finally, the last Supreme Court told me that they were going to, uh, to deny our stay motion. I was talking to this man shortly before the execution and having this unbelievably painful conversation. Uh, the man, in addition to his intellectual disabilities, also had a very severe speech impediment. And the closer we got to the execution, the harder it was for him to get his words out. He, he couldn't get his words out, and he was just so anxious and nervous. And I was holding the phone, listening to him try to thank me. And the harder he tried to talk, the more it just broke my heart. And I was sitting there with tears running down my face while I gave him the space to get his words out. And I remembered something I had forgotten until that night. I remembered how when I was about nine or 10 years old, my mother took me to church one Sunday. And we were there waiting for church to start. And I was there with my brother and my friend and we were talking back and forth. But there was a little skinny kid I'd never seen before standing next to one of my friends and he wasn't saying a word. And at some point I asked him a question, where are you from or why are you here or something? And when this little boy tried to answer my question, he couldn't get his words out. He also had a very severe speech impediment. And because I'd never met anybody like that, I did something really ignorant. I laughed. And my mother was standing across the room, and she saw me laughing at this boy, and she gave me this look I'd never seen before. And she called me over to her, and she said, Brian, don't you ever laugh at somebody because they can't get their words out right. Don't you ever do that. And I tried to defend myself. I said, I'm sorry, Mom, I didn't mean to. She said, no, 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 you know better than that. You know better than that. I said, okay, I'm sorry. She said, well, no, you're going to go back over there, and I want you to tell that little boy that you're sorry. I said, okay. And then she said, after you tell him you're sorry, I want you to hug him. And then she said, after you hug him, I want you to tell him that you love him. I said, mom, I can apologize, but I can't go. And she gave me that look again, so I did. I ran back over to this little boy, and I went up to him. I said, look, man, I'm, I'm sorry. And then I sort of lunged at him and gave him my little boy version of a man hug. And what I remember doing is saying as insincerely as I possibly could, I said, and um, I love you. And what I'd forgotten until that night was how that little boy hugged me back and said flawlessly in my ear, he said, I love you too. 
I'd forgotten all about it until I was on the phone listening to this man trying to talk and he was just trying to get his words out and finally he got the words out and all he was trying to say was thank you for fighting for me. Thank you for representing me. I love you for trying to save my life. And when I hung up the phone, I thought to myself, this is too hard. I don't want to do this no more. It's just too hard. I kept thinking about how broken he is, and I don't understand why do we want to kill all the broken people in our country? Why do we want to crush the broken? Why is it that we throw broken children away? What is it about brokenness that makes us want to crush and beat and condemn? And then I thought about something I hadn't thought about. I realized that all of my clients are broken. And then I realized that my life is filled with brokenness. I represent people broken by disability, broken by poverty, broken by racism, broken by illness, broken by marginality, broken by judgment and condemnation. And then I realized I work in a broken system. Uh, politicians and policymakers and judges broken by cynicism, broken by distance, broken by despair, broken by anger and fear, broken, broken, broken. And I just kept saying, I don't want to do this anymore. And then I had to have that conversation you have to have with yourself when you're dealing with these kinds of issues. And I remember saying, well, if you're not going to do this, you better understand why you were doing it. And I started asking myself those questions. And I realized something I hadn't realized before. I realized uh, why I do this work. And I realized that I don't do it because I have to. I don't do it because somebody has to do it. I don't do it because I've been trained to do it. I don't do it because it's important. I don't do it because I get to talk to wonderful people like you. I realized that night that I don't do what I do for the money. There's no money. I don't do what I do because there's an opportunity to make things better. I realized that night that I do what I do because I'm broken too. And the truth of it is that when you choose to do uncomfortable things, there will be these moments where there's a little cut, there's a little bruise, there's a little injury. It will make you uncomfortable in ways that create cracks and injuries. But I also realize that in brokenness, you become connected to your humanity. I believe broken people are the only people that will create justice in this society because they accept and understand what the needs of mercy are. You cannot be compassionate until you need compassion. You cannot be merciful until you need mercy. And I am persuaded that when you get uncomfortable, you appreciate things you cannot appreciate otherwise. I believe that each of us is more than the worst thing we've ever done. That's what my clients have taught me. I believe if somebody tells a lie, they're not just a liar. I think if someone takes something that doesn't belong to them, they're not just a thief. I think even if you kill someone, you're not just a killer. And because of that, there is this human dignity that requires a community of people to protect them. I also believe that in this country, the opposite of poverty is not wealth. I don't believe that. I believe in Minneapolis and St. Paul and Minnesota, all over America, I don't believe the opposite of poverty is wealth. I believe the opposite of poverty is justice. And when we commit ourselves to justice, when we get proximate and change narratives and create hope and do uncomfortable things, then and only then can we deconstruct poverty. Finally, I believe. You judge the quality of life in a community. I can't judge Minneapolis and St. Paul and the Twin Cities and this state by all of the extraordinary people who are here and all of the wonderful things that I've seen. You judge the quality of life in a community, the character of a community, its civility, its commitment to the rule of law, not by how you treat the powerful and the rich and the affluent. You judge a character of a community by how you treat the poor, the incarcerated, and the condemned. I'll end with this. I know it's hard. Uh, to think about preparing yourselves uh, to do difficult things. I know that. Uh, being proximate is challenging. Being, uh, changing narrative is hard. Uh, being hopeful is hard. And certainly doing uncomfortable things. But there is something wonderful on the other side of this. I'll end with this. I was giving a talk in a church not too long ago, and 
was an older man sitting in the back of the church, a much smaller church than this. He was just sitting in the back, and he was staring at me. He had this very kind of rough look on his face. And I couldn't tell why he was so agitated, but he had this very stern look. And I finished my talk, and people came up, and they were very nice, but the man kept staring at me in the back. He was in a wheelchair, and this little boy came over, and he wheeled him up to me. And as the man came up to me, he had this very tough look on his face, a stern look. And he came up to me, and as soon as he got in front of me, he said, do you know what you're doing? And I was thrown. I stepped back. And he asked me again. He said, do you know what you're doing? And I started mumbling something. I don't even know what I said, but I didn't know how to respond to him. And then he says, I'm going to tell you what you're doing. And I never will forget it. He looked at me. He says, you're beating the drum for justice. And it moved me. He says, you're beating the drum for justice. He said, you keep beating the drum for justice. And I just was so moved. And he said, come here, come here, come here. And he grabbed me by my jacket. And he pulled me into the wheelchair. He said, I'm going to show you something. And he turned his head. He said, you see this scar I got behind my right ear? He said, I got that scar in Greene County, Alabama, trying to register people to vote in 1963. He turned his head. He said, you see this cut I have back here? He said, I got that cut during Freedom Summer in Philadelphia, Mississippi. He turned his head, he said, you see this dark spot? He said, you see that bruise? He said, I got that bruise during the Children's Crusade in Birmingham, Alabama. And then he looked at me and said, people think I'm some old man in a wheelchair covered with cuts and bruises and scars. He said, but I'm going to tell you something. He said, these aren't my cuts. These aren't my bruises. These aren't my scars. He said, these are my medals of honor. And there is something wonderful when a community stands up to embrace those that are broken. It's something wonderful when we stand up and demand some justice, hope for some justice, change narratives, and get close to the places and spaces where there is suffering and inequality. And it's with that hope that I'm so delighted that you've come out today. And I'm so grateful for having this time to be with you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Brian Stevenson. I've been doing the Town Hall Forum for 15 years, I think, now. And I, I, don't, I don't ever recall a, a, a presentation as riveting and as passionate and as articulate as that. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I'm the senior minister here at Westminster Church and moderator of the forum. Our speaker today is public interest attorney Brian Stevenson. While the ushers collect questions from the audience, I'd like to invite you to join us again at Westminster Church for our spring 2015 season. Information on our speakers and dates will be available online in early January. Forum events are free and open to the public, and information can be found at our website, westminsterforum.org. And now, Brian Stevenson, if you return to the pulpit, I will present the questions from our audience. I wanted to ask you, you mentioned you were speaking in a church recently. You're in a church now. What is the connection between communities of faith and the work that you're doing? Well, I absolutely believe that communities of faith, as they always have, have a real leadership role in, in, in changing the narrative in this country. We, 
uh, people of faith are the people who are most connected with the importance of uh, resisting uh, condemnation and destruction. I, you know, what's frustrated me more than anything over the last 30 years is to hear our politicians all competing with each other on who can be toughest. And no one is prepared to use the word redemption. No one is prepared to use the word rehabilitation. Nobody's prepared to use the word recovery. And I think people of faith have to demand that from their leaders because if we believe in redemption, if we believe in recovery, if we believe in rehabilitation, we ought to want people who are going to represent that and the way we deal with those that are struggling and suffering. And I, I just think that we're in a moment now where we have an opportunity to push our elected leaders to, to do, deal more honestly with these issues. And so I'm hoping uh, that communities of faith will stand up and, and be heard. Uh, I certainly believe, I grew up in a faith community and I was taught and, and heard so many transformative things, but I believe, if we believe, uh, that every valley shall be exalted, if we believe that mountains can be made low, if we believe that crooked places can be made straight and rough places can be made plain, then surely we can believe that we can do better in this country than incarcerating the highest number of people in the world, uh, doing more than we're putting our children in jails and prisons. And it's that belief, that hope, that willingness to believe things that you haven't seen that this country desperately needs, or certainly our criminal justice system uh, desperately needs. And so I really uh, appreciate when faith communities allow themselves to be heard. I met with the people doing the affordable housing program here and working with reentry here. We desperately need that. And I stand with all of those people of faith who want to raise their voice as a person of faith in demand of greater justice and opportunity. I just want to say, Brian Stevenson met before the forum with a group from Westminster and Plymouth churches that are working hard on creating a, a affordable, supportive housing for men coming out of prison in our community. Break in the news in a few weeks, and we're going to need your support because people will not be happy about this. <laughs> Let me ask this question from, I believe, a white man in the audience. I heard a man from North Minneapolis, which is a largely African American neighborhood in our city, say this morning, though he'd never done anything wrong, he had been stopped 47 times in his life in his car. How can white people use their status and privilege to change this injustice? Mm. Well, it's not an unfamiliar uh, story, and I think part of what is so vexing and distressing to people is that there is no accountability for this menacing. There is no accountability for this harassment. And, um, you know, it can go from that being stopped. I was a young lawyer coming home from work one night and had police officers pull a gun and threaten to blow my head off if I... Uh, if I moved, and, and that kind of reality can be quite traumatizing and burdensome. So whether we're talking about that or we're just talking about following people around when they're in department stores or doubting that these children can perform well, assuming that this person is the source of the con all of that stuff, I don't think we can do anything about it that's going to really have long-term consequences until we talk about why these biases exist, why these presumptions exist, which is why I want to talk more about our history of racial inequality. We produce a calendar, which we, I invite every, anyone here to kind of email me, and you will make these calendars available to you at no cost, which really try to teach people about what have, what's happened over our last, in this country over the last uh, couple, couple of centuries. And the purpose of it is to get people sensitive to these dynamics. You know, if you came into the church today and you inadvertently knocked somebody over and they fell down and hit their head, and they were in the hospital, and you didn't know anything about it until somebody came up to you and said, you know, you probably didn't mean this, but you knocked over my friend, and she hit her head, and now she's at the hospital. I think most of you would want to do something. 
you would feel some need to, to talk to somebody, to go and visit. You'd want to make something happen so that you could be at peace with what you had done. And that is a microcosm of what has to happen at the community level. And so when that man says he's been stopped 47 times, we need to wrap our arms around him and first maybe say, you know, we are sorry that this has happened to you. We need to stand with people who are being victimized in whatever context and to first say, we're sorry this has happened to you, let's talk about it. Because that gives people the capacity to endure that struggle until we get to the point where we can make real change. And so I am persuaded we've got to talk more about our legacy. If we commit ourselves to truth and reconciliation, I think we can make real progress. We can't make people reconcile themselves, but we can tell the truth. And when we tell the truth, we create an environment, a community where people maybe are a little more motivated to do things that are going to change the way our policies get implemented. We have about uh, 300 students in the room. We're getting a lot of questions from them. That's good. Uh, a lot of them are asking about Ferguson. What do you think about the, what we learned last night from the grand jury and their decision not to indict the officer? Yeah, I, I'm not surprised by the decision not to indict. I mean, we have seen this play out time and time again. The criminal justice system right now is unrepentant. It doesn't feel like it owes anybody anything. It is steeped in a narrative that says that whatever we do is right. If we check this box, it's right. We don't have to worry about the mistakes we've made in the past. We're never going to be accountable. And when you have a system like that, it's not going to be sensitive to the kind of rage and frustration that was on display. And so I think we need a different system. We need a system that's populated by people who appreciate the power of being the prosecutor, appreciate the responsibility uh, of being uh, the judge. And um, I mean, I just think it's regrettable. My biggest criticism is that from day one, the problem has been how do we manage people's anger and frustration? That's what people seem to be dealing with. The governor's declaring a state of emergency days before. They orchestrated the release of this at 9 o'clock last night. It sends a signal that what we're really concerned about is how do we manage these angry black people? And if you think that's the problem, then you're not going to deal honestly with the real issues. And the real issues are what are we going to do about the fact that we have people who are, who are hired to protect and serve who are acting on bias, who are presuming dangerousness and guilt? What are we going to do about the fact that we have so many people in this community who feel beaten and menaced and threatened by law enforcement? It's unconscionable that you would have an 18-year-old uh, teenager uh, in a, an event with a police officer where the 18-year-old teenager shoots the police officer and kills the police officer where that 18-year-old black teenager would not get indicted. And people are aware of that and that disconnect is part of what we have to talk about. I do hope that we recognize that Ferguson is every community in America. It's every community in America. There's nothing unique about Ferguson. What's unique about Ferguson is that people stood up and the, and the cameras got turned on. The cameras will get turned off, just like they did after the Trayvon Martin, a George Zimmerman verdicts. And then the question is, what will we do in Minneapolis and St. Paul? What will we do in Los Angeles and Oakland? And that's what I think, uh, students, we need to be talking about. What are we going to do about the disparities that exist within our schools? What are we going to do about the way in which some kids seem to be uh, demonized and criminalized when they leave? What are we going to do about that? because that's going to ultimately lead to the best response to Ferguson, which is change in this narrative. If the president had called you yesterday afternoon and asked for advice as to what he should say if the, if the grand jury did what it did, what would you have told him? You know, I would have said that, I would have first said, you know, I want to apologize to any person of color in this country that feels menaced and threatened by the police. I want to say, I am sorry 
if you've been stopped unfairly. I am sorry if you've been arrested unfairly. I'm sorry if, if someone said something to you that wasn't fair or right. I'm sorry if you've been followed into department stores. I would start with a gigantic apology on behalf of this country to all of those who have been menaced and terrorized and threatened and followed and harassed and frisked and stopped and shot. Because until you do that, Until you do that, you don't even get anybody's attention. And I would say, don't, let's not worry as much. I, it's a serious problem when people are protesting and burning things. I get it. But let's not worry as much about that as what we're going to do to change the safety parameters for people of color in this country. People loot and burn things when your pro basketball team wins a championship, right? And it's not because, there's not, it's, it's a serious problem, don't get me wrong, but you have people living in the margins of society who feel like the rest of what happens in America doesn't really apply to them. And there are moments when they get to express that and this is what you see. But until we begin to talk about these fundamental issues, uh, this racial narrative that has so undermined fairness, and it's just not just African Americans in this part of the country, you see it with native populations, you see it with uh, people who are Muslim or Arab that are now suspected and all of that, until we begin to talk honestly. So I would start with an apology, and then I would talk about what do we need to do. What, do we, what we need to do is to create a conversation rooted in, first, the apology. There is a dead young man in that community, and his parents are grieving, and the people who knew him are grieving, and that's nothing to be uh, obnoxious about, arrogant about, defiant about. That's something we should be, we should be mourning, and that's what I would have told him to say. Question from a student about changing the narrative. What do you think that black kids growing up can do better to end the stereotypes aimed now toward us? Yeah, well, I think three things. I think, first of all, you need to understand um, where those uh, stereotypes come from. And I think that until you understand that history, you're not going to understand the best way to react to it. So, you know, we're talking to people about slavery and terrorism and all these kinds of things because while it's tragic and difficult, there's also something empowering about it. Uh, my grandmother is the daughter of people who are enslaved. My great-grandfather was born in slavery in 1840 in Virginia. My grand grandmother was born in uh, Virginia in the 1880s and talked to me about slavery all the time. Uh, my parents couldn't go to high school because the schools were segregated and they didn't allow them to get to those schools. And yet I'm standing here and I'm not somebody who doesn't want to talk about the fact that I am the descendant of a slave. I'm, if, I had to, if I were younger, I'd be creating a slave descendant society and I would put on that t-shirt because I want this country to confront that legacy. So knowing the history is the first thing and not being afraid to talk about that history to get greater understanding. The second thing is I think we have to be willing to give voice to these issues when they happen. It's hard, particularly when you're in high school, to stand when everybody else is sitting, uh, to speak when everybody else is quiet, but sometimes the most transformative, powerful, courageous thing you can do is to be that person who stands in the face of racial bias when you see it, to be that person who speaks when you see unfairness. And thirdly, I think you have to recognize uh, that you are more than what other people think you are. And that doesn't matter whether you're talking about race or gender or sexuality. You have to recognize that you are more than what other people think you are. And this idea that I am more than, you are more than, I think is essential to positioning yourself, preparing yourself to then be that witness who can be proximate, change narratives, stay hopeful, and do uncomfortable things. You are all extraordinary young people. And sometimes the metrics we use for that don't get reflected in the same way, but you are. 
And appreciating that and acting on that is the third thing I would encourage you to do. That's all we have time for. Thank you, Brian Stevenson. Right.